I, I want to be held accountable for what I'm doing. You know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha. Jesus is smart. This idea of income inequality, that always strikes me as a very, it's a deceptive term, income inequality. Well, let's flip it around. It comes from outcome inequality. In five, four, three, two. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm here joined by my co-hosts... Steve Jeffries, Yogi Poyle, Andy Palmer. And so uh, this week, well, we passed a, a, a solemn milestone in the history of America. We passed the 18th anniversary of uh, 9-11. She's legal. September 11th attacks. And um, it, it comes at a fortuitous time, because as we're recording this, uh, September 16, we have just had... Saudi Arabia themselves suffer their own 9/11 attacks. Uh and this Mossel. is <laughs> This is like and again I'm not uh well so for those not familiar there was a, an attack on the Saudi oil infrastructure. The Aramco uh oil processing uh plant Aramco is the Saudi uh state-owned oil company, right. the largest oil processing plant in the world as well as uh, one of their oil fields was attacked. Uh, Houthi rebels from Yemen claimed responsibility. Uh, they've had to shut down, the Saudis have had to shut down 5% of the entire global oil supply wow. just from this one one attack. Um, and uh, according to uh, just Twitter an hour ago, Zachary Cohen for CNN, he reports that the U.S. Special Envoy for Iran, Brian Hook, held a call with uh, U.S. Hill staffers and said that the Saudis view this attack as, quote, their 9-11, <laughs> unquote. Does that mean that they also did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes, this attack on oil infrastructure where literally zero people died. Did right. someone call police on some dancing Houthis? <laughs> <laughs> Celebrating? Yeah. Well, they should have known uh, a month ago when Iran tweeted a picture of an airplane flying into their oil fields <laughs> to threaten Saudi. The The New York Times has like pictures of the impact points and respect to the Houthis, like... They hit a bullseye on each one of these tanks. It's like yeah. perfectly lined up. So there's four sil- like huge silos. Right? Yeah, yeah. The drones, either sh- or they, 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 they just ran into them. With, um, oh. Yeah. I thought they were little drones packed with explosives. Well, so the Houthis in their statement said that they sent out 10 drones, and now the United States is claiming that Iran launched cruise missiles at the things. Mm. Uh, so... You know, mm. we'll. By the time we release this, the world could have ended. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll find out. But, but um, SoundCloud survi- or Patreon, I guess, survives. <laughs> yeah, there's four huge silos, and it's just like bullseye each of them. Whoever did that, nice work, <laughs> good aim. Yeah. Yeah. So before we really start digging into 9/11, I um, made a word map of the episode we're about to record, mm-hmm. and let's see the top words that we use are let's see thermite <laughs> building seven mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, missile obviously the jews mm. sounds like the metadata of my resume <laughs> <laughs> on linkedin put that in white text underneath yeah, the black text white text <laughs> underneath <laughs> it's an entire layer like uh carl was saying yeah that was like my episode. My old Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't finish. Uh, the Jews had nothing to do with it. Yep. That, that's all the words together. Um, 
but yeah, like Andy's getting at. So today, or for this week... <laughs> like Andy's getting at, about the Jews doing 9-11. Well, that's the thing. It's like, look, for this week's episode, we're going to talk first, uh, probably about half about the September 11th attacks, and probably about half about the Mafuz family, is a family of Saudi billionaires that funded Al-Qaeda. So, a family of Saudi billionaires. Any family. <laughs> We're just focusing on Tower 7. That's the half yes. of 9-11 we'll cover. But, but so this is what I'm getting at here, because, you know, Andy mentions, you know, these conspiracies about the Jews, and then Yogi mentions the Tower 7 shit. And I think something that fascinates and bothers me a lot is that because of, you know, loose change and the 9-11 truth movement and all that, the idea that there was a 9-11 cover-up is like something people roll their eyes at. Right, of we're, course. We're also um, uh, immunized against that, that we're like, yeah, no, they told us everything in the 9-11 commission report, you know, and, and, and if you raise any questions, you're just like a fucking tinfoil thermite in Tower 7 guy. But it's like, it is very clear that the Bush administration and subsequent presidents after him, Obama and now Trump, covered up the very real role that the Saudi government had in carrying out the September 11th attacks. And that's just like simple logic, which is like the majority of the hijackers did not speak English, had never lived in the United States before. And so how do they get apartments? How do they pay their rent? How do they get driver's license? Well, it turns out a lot of the people who happened to do that, according to the 9-11 families that are suing... Maybe they had connections in the Saudi stand-up community. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of the people uh, who who did that, according to the 9-11 families who are suing the Saudi government, they say they've identified at least 11 people who were on Saudi government payroll who helped the hijackers either get apartments or driver's license or flying lessons or whatever else the case may be. They actually supported themselves by walking dogs. (laughs) (laughs) They're all WAG employees. But, you know, and, and so it is just something where it's like, the Bush administration, there's an article in the New York Post about how the Bush administration directed Robert Mueller, who was then the head of the FBI, mm-hmm. to not pursue all of these different leads against Saudis, right. to let uh, uh, Saudis, including bin Laden's family, leave the country immediately after September 11th, uh, when you know many of them were credibly accused of funding and being a part of this terrorist activity. They should have been questioned or held, you know? By the way, if you're also interested in some of uh, Robert Mueller's greatest hits before the um, Trump investigation, look into the anthrax attacks <laughs> that he was also in charge of not finding an answer to. <laughs> I'm so mad that Mueller, she wrote, makes so much more money than <laughs> Mueller he wrote. Oh wait, no, no, it's it Mueller she wrote. Yeah, because it's make feminist sense. somehow. Oh, they're so pretentious. I got in a fight with them, and they were like, um, "On our podcast." We discussed the concept of sexy justice. <laughs> That's really what they said in the Twitter. That's fight what with you? they said to me. You got served, Doug. They blocked me after I refused to respect whoever was running that account because they were a troop. Mueller, she wrote the death warrant for that sixteen-year-old Shia boy who protested the regime. <laughs> My, I'm, I'm. All, all I know is that one of the um, hosts who runs the account claims to be a troop. And as a woman... When you say troop, do you mean veteran or do you mean improv troop? Because there's a pretty big distinction here. I guess uh, it could be both. <laughs> but apparently so served, the troops. <laughs> served in, in as a veteran of foreign wars. And so I'm just going to speculate uh, without any uh, anything to go off that she was the one who pointed at the dude's penis 
and the uh, Abu Ghraib prison torture. Oh yeah, sure. Would, you know what? It would be kind of ironic if she served in Iraq because the guy she made a podcast about didn't investigate <laughs> the Saudi connection. <laughs> because, like, look, this is my working theory of September 11th attacks. Here is that I don't think the Bush administration had advanced knowledge of the attacks. Mm-hmm. What I do think is entirely clear. What? <laughs> <laughs> what I do think is entirely clear is that the Bush administration had the attacks and it's like we have a golden opportunity now now we have project for a new american century well, we, we can go into iraq so let's just shut down every lead into investigating the saudis and make this look like saddam hussein there was one uh, indication of an attack like i think it was a cia uh briefer mm-hmm. showed uh bush uh it might have been a couple months before the attack happened like oh there's this al-qaeda thing um there it looks like a plan's imminent and apparently at the end of it bush reportedly said okay you've covered your ass <laughs> really yeah and dismissed him mm-hmm. i mean you say it's conspiracy sean but my man head coach of the seahawks sees clearly 9-11 truth is out there and he's looking for it yes pete carroll seahawks coach uh has been way ahead of us on this mm-hmm. so That's right. credit where credit is due <laughs> the same method that got the seahawks to win a super bowl and lose a Super Bowl is the same guy heading the 9-11 truth movement. He's going to pass when he should run. <laughs> and John McCree of cake. Oh, really? Yeah. Pete, Pete Carroll uh, blamed his decision to pass instead of run on being distracted by di- <laughs> by dancing Israelis. <laughs> you know, it is crazy, though, when you look at the list of people that were supposedly... Uh, going to be on that flight or in the towers, the amount of celebrity that avo- nearly avoided death uh, is very intriguing because I just learned previous to this podcast that Michael Jackson was supposed to be in the towers at this time, but he canceled all his meetings because he was tired after performing all night in New York and his family didn't know, so they thought he was dead for a moment. But then if you remember the court cases they have in 2005, but Stephen and Sean were saying that those were had been going on for a few years, but there's a chance if Michael Jackson died in 9-11, we would remember him as the pop king and not the person he ended up becoming. I just like like all those celebrities living. It's like, yeah, it turns out it uh, pays to be on the Saudi embassy mailing list. <laughs> fucking attend some parties there. It might save your life. They got a newsletter. Wait, wait. Here's here's my impression of uh, John McCree talking about 9-11. Yeah, you know, there's still some things we need to look into. Because <laughs> Cake uses the Vibra Slap. It's it's his number one instrument. <laughs> Who's this? John McCree of Cake. Oh, that's what you're doing. Got it. Yeah. Well, I hope our listeners get the reference. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea what the fuck you're talking about. But um, before we talk about the Mafuz family, <laughs> I wanted to uh, just kind of go through something you might have heard a little bit about is the so-called 28 pages. This is a... Uh, um, the there was the original congressional investigation in like December 2002 mm-hmm. released the joint congressional investigation into 9/11 and the Bush administration ordered 28 pages of that classified and all of those 28 pages related to Saudi Arabia hmm. coincidentally just before we launch a war with Iraq right and so uh, under like immense public pressure Obama declassifies most of this in 2016 mm-hmm. but there's still three pages worth of uh, redactions. Oh, interesting. Which is all just, you know, Saudi names and other stuff. Stuff. I think we talked about this on another episode, but 
like most of those 28 pages are from a source who was tortured so much that he lost an eye and can't remember how he lost it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you mentioning that. Well, I, I don't know how much of that is true. I mean, like, I know the guy was tortured by the CIA and lost an eye. I just don't know how much, like, that is be- the no, 28 I mean, pages fr- are based on that. From what I read, it right. cites him throughout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I did want to just cite a couple things. Yo, you could forget losing an eye. Think about that for a second. <laughs> What happened, bro? I woke up and didn't have twenty twenty vision. I had ten ten, barely that, because I was nearsighted before all this started too. Uh, well, I did just want to quote from some of the twenty eight pages, uh, and then we'll kind of talk about the Mafuz family, and then we'll go back to you know what we know about the September eleventh attacks and just how clear the Saudi connection is. Do they make uh, prescription monocles? Is that a thing? Like if you ain't got one they're eye, all prescription. That's the purpose, isn't it? Or are they magnifying? I don't. I've never known what a monocle is supposed to be outside of letting people know you're rich. <laughs> examining diamonds. Oh, okay. Like yeah, 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 RLS, yeah. Right, right. Abu Zubaydah is his name. What if Dan Crenshaw and Abu Zubaydah? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, what if Crenshaw lost the right eye and Abu lost the left <laughs> eye? So they tape their heads together and then they can play football again. <laughs> <laughs> they get their depth perception back by working together. And it's like a buddy comedy yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's like, right. I'm like a right wing psychopath and you're an Al Qaeda member. But, you know, like we can put the differences aside. Well, he was also a guy who was barely affiliated with Al Qaeda. Yeah. But uh, said that he was under torture hmm. to get it to stop. There's like an awkward moment in the buddy comedy where they like play with a football made out of pig skin <laughs> but then dan crenshaw gets like more of an open mind and he's like you know what all religious practices deserve respect and we should play with a synthetic leather football wait hear me out yeah uh abu zubeda and dan crenshaw yeah they do face off <laughs> and no one notices that it's a different eye <laughs> an eye for an eye brings everyone on the same side honestly i worked way too hard on that in my head so i don't care if no one like that you try and think of a better word than blind face off but with two people of very different complexions <laughs> yeah suddenly dan crenshaw becomes like a really good congressman and <laughs> abu zabeda just actually joins al-qaeda <laughs> I think ISIS made a version of Face Off as well. <laughs> well, it's Face Plus, <laughs> the stuff behind it. Um, but regardless, what I wanted to do here was uh, read, uh, before we get to the Mafuz family, the Saudi billionaires, I wanted to just read a little bit from some of what was declassified from the 28 pages. And maybe you can understand why the Bush administration decided to keep these 28 pages classified before we invaded Iraq over September 11th. Nice. Uh, page 415, while in, uh, quoting, while in the United States, some of the September 11th hijackers were in contact with and received support and assistance from individuals who may be connect, connected to the Saudi government. At least two of these individuals were alleged by some to be Saudi intelligence officers. Page 417, one of the individuals identified in the pages as a financial supporter of two of the 9-11 hijackers later received, quote, a significant amount of cash, unquote, from, quote, a member of the Saudi royal family, unquote, during a 2002 trip to Houston. Hmm. Uh, And then quoting uh, page 421, a delete it, 
you know, redaction, right. dated to July 2, 2002, indicates, quote, incontrovertible evidence that there is support for these terrorists inside the Saudi government. Page 421. And again, this is all put together in 2002. So we knew all this shit before we went to 9-11. We, in fact, knew all this shit very, the government at least, did very soon after the September 11th attacks. And of course, remember, you know, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis and the people who support... Wait, what pages were these again? Uh, 415, 417, 421. Okay. Of uh, the, uh, I believe this is the joint inquiry into 9-11, joint congressional inquiry into the September 11th attacks. But I guess, like, I wanted to start with just kind of the Mafuz family to give you an idea of the kind of Saudi billionaires that funded Al-Qaeda, at least before 9-11, and then we will circle back and kind of go through what we know about the September 11th attacks. And... I guess just what the families are looking for, because something we didn't mention that I will mention now is that just uh, there there was a law that was passed that was originally vetoed by Obama and the Congress overrode that veto in 2016, which gave the families of 9-11 the right to sue the Saudi government. Right. And they are having a, a lawsuit that is ongoing. And then just last week, uh, the Trump administration decided to uh, declassify uh, an FBI report that was written in 2012 that looked into possible Saudi support for um, for these terrorists. And the basic story of what the Trump administration decided was there were two um, uh, two men, Fahed al-Thimari and Omar al-Boyomi. God damn it, Bayomi. <laughs> Send your complaints <laughs> of the show to Pod on Twitter. They were both attached to the Saudi Arabia's U.S. Embassy, and they were 100% ha- uh, handlers for uh, hijackers called the San Diego Cell. Hmm. At least two hijackers that came in through San Diego dealt with these people. Um, And we'll get back to this story later, but the important point is there's a 2012 FBI report that details a third Saudi who is believed to be essentially the handler of these two handlers, the guy above him. Gotcha. And uh, this name has been redacted up until now, and then last week the Trump administration said, we will release this name to the lawyers of the 9-11 family who are suing families, who are suing Saudi, Hmm. and maybe it will be more widely declassified after that. But it is just something where it's like, we're coming up on 18 years, and the U.S. government has been fighting tooth and nail against, you know, the survivors and on behalf of the Saudi government. And it is just a very disturbing thing. And I think the 9-11 truth and loose change and all that has really uh, prevented this from becoming the scandal of the century because everybody just assumes, yeah, there's no cover-up with the September 11th attacks. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly exceedingly uh, intentional to subvert the idea of what the truth is on this entire attack and to not... I mean, even the fact that the the conspiracy theorists are called truthers is so funny. Like, literally, they're looking for what they believe is the truth, and that is somehow being construed as, like, they are the fucking crazy ones. Like, if they're like, we're trying to unearth the dirt, you can at least be like, okay, well, calm down, buddy. But when someone's like, we want to find the truth... You got to give them the benefit of the doubt and be like, oh, I mean, that's all they're looking for. They think something's fishy. Mm-hmm. And it's not that hard to look at what went down and to think to yourself, I don't know, not all this adds up. But then again, I guess I'm just against America. Yeah. Well, not all of us have the mind of uh, Seahawks coach Pete Carroll. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy how many celebs that you don't think about lied about 9 11 as well, whether it's like Steve Ronazizi. Being like, I was 
in downtown and I was in the attacks and then 14 years later being like none of that shit actually happened. Apparently, I just found that uh, Russell Peters was in Toronto with Mark Wahlberg. So Mark Wahlberg's whole, if I was on that flight, I'd, I'd fuck up them terrorist shit was a lie too, potentially. Well, he would have fucked up those terrorists. That's not the point. Mark Wahlberg's claimed that he would have been, if he was on that flight, I guess that's really where the part the the story comes a little loose because could Mark Wahlberg beat up these terrorists most likely he's beaten up an Asian man and nearly made him blind because he was a bigot at one point in his life now he's completely fine by the way <laughs> but Mark Wahlberg claimed that he was supposed to be on those flights and that he, since he wasn't the terrorist attacks happened but Russell Peters in this interview from 2015 says that they were both at this Toronto film festival I don't think that the Vietnamese guy who he beat it up had martial arts training, um, <laughs> mace, and box cutters. Yeah, and that's a fair point. But, I mean, I just feel like the Boston Energy Wahlberg Scott could beat up anyone. <laughs> <laughs> you put a Pabst Blue Ribbon inside of him, and, and all, <laughs> all hell is going to break loose. Yeah, he, he definitely flies strong. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a bit here uh, about the Mafuz family, and then we'll go back to some of the strange coincidences with the September 11th attacks. Uh, the uh, Mafuz family goes back to a guy named Salem bin Mafuz, is a Saudi who actually grew up in poverty in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he moved to Saudi Arabia, people say, sometime in uh, 1912, actually, when he was six years old. Hmm. Uh, and so Salem bin Mafuz, according to the New York Times, he was employed as a currency exchanger, a money changer, as it were, hmm. uh, uh, in Mecca. Uh, like pilgrims would come to Mecca and he would change money for them. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, the, the <laughs> trying to try find a bid in this shop. The kind of people Jesus had a real problem <laughs> with. Uh, they actually, uh, at that point, they nailed the tables to the floor so that they couldn't get flipped. <laughs> Jesus saw this and he was like, in 1991, I am going to send crusaders here <laughs> to punish you for money changing. Uh, but so uh, what happens is, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the uh, the premium episode about Rihanna's boyfriend. But in 1945, of course, the United States and Saudi Arabia begin what was would be their relationship continuing up to this day where, you know, Saudi becomes the main uh, source of U.S. oil right. and allows, you know, U.S. global hegemony. And in exchange, you know, the U.S. guarantees Saudi security. Um so, you know, he's a uh, Salim uh, Ben Mafuz is a money changer. Uh, but in uh, in 1949, you know, after 1945, FDR and the king of uh, Saudi meet at Bitter Lake. 1949, he becomes a partner in like uh, a currency business, mm-hmm. you know, making a lot more money. Now the oil money's coming in. And then in 1953, he actually convinces the king of Saudi to uh, give him the license to open a bank. Hmm. It was called the uh, the National Commercial Bank. It's still around. It was at one point the largest bank in Saudi Arabia. I believe now it's like number two, but the National Commercial Bank will unsurprisingly be linked to funding Al Qaeda, which we what? will get we will get back to. But uh, regardless, uh, Salem bin Mafuz gets a license from the Saudi king in 1953 to establish this bank, and then it's like there's so much fucking money coming in. Uh, in particular, after like 1973, there's like a huge spike in revenues for the kingdom. According to the book Alms for Jihad, uh, the 1973 oil crisis is when OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Companies, mm-hmm. countries, excuse me, they embargo 
the United States uh, for supporting Israel during the Yom Kippur War in mm. 1973. And this embargo like drives the global price of oil up through the roof. Right. So just according to the book Alms for Jihad, oil revenues in Saudi Arabia spike from $8 billion annually to $34 billion annually in less than a year. Wow. So, like, in 1973, there's an explosion of money. Yeah. So, it's like, you know... More than triples. Right. So, the way, you know, uh, uh, Salem um, uh, bin Mahfouz managed to become a billionaire is he was the banker for the largest oil reserves in the entire uh, world. All right. You know, just in time for oil prices to, to spike astronomically and right. make him a fortune. And so, uh, but it's kind of interesting, like, he's uh, generally portrayed as kind of a smart guy. Uh, of course, he made his fortune with, you know, royal connections. That's mm-hmm. the only way he was able to do it. But he was originally like an illiterate... That's pretty smart. <laughs> he was originally an illiterate Yemeni uh, immigrant who rose from being a money changer to essentially a billionaire. Wow. Um, but he dies in 1986, and then his son, Khalid, oh. takes over. Mm-hmm. Khalid. Uh, it depends on how many letters are in the name. What, what has to spell it? Uh, I've seen K H A L I D, but also K H A L E D. So the L I D, the musician, is Khalid, mm. but I think the E D is Khaled. So if you want to try, you can do it that way. But I'm pretty sure you're going to say. Well, it's also transliterated from a language with no vowels in their writing. Well, uh, needless to be, I mean, I think Sean's getting it wrong. Khaled posts the picture of the plane flying into the uh, uh, CN Tower in Toronto, <laughs> and he goes, another one. <laughs> <laughs> we the best. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do if someone makes me a pussy. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it, Andy. Uh, okay, but so it's just interesting where like his he dies, uh, the father dies, Salem dies, 1986, his son takes over the business. I believe he had like 11 kids. I think it's his middle kid takes over. And he's just like a complete idiot and kind of runs the business into the ground in a, a pretty fascinating way. <laughs> whoa, whoa. You're yeah. telling me nepotism's bad? Mm-hmm. I thought the roots of people that are great are always good. Mm-hmm. All that glitters is gold. So like uh, essentially what happens is Khaled, uh, here it's spelled K-H-A-L-E-D, but whatever the case may be, uh, there's Could a, it be two different people? Does he have two kids named Khalid no, versus Khalid? No, Khaled? I think it's, it's just people, people go back and forth on the All spelling. Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Khalid takes over in 1986, but what happens in the late 80s is there's a recession in mm-hmm. like global oil prices and such. Right. So he ends up you know, taking over this national commercial bank um, that happened to have like a bunch of outstanding loans to members of the Saudi royal family. Mm-hmm. So in 90 and 91, uh, according to the book Alms for Jihad, senior members of the Saudi royal family start defaulting on their huge loans, mm-hmm. uh, putting the bank at risk. And there's rumors that that included the king of Saudi Arabia. Oh, like, really? He had taken out like fat loans from this bank and not paid it back. What really gets uh, Khaled in trouble is between 1986 and 1990, he, per- uh, he uses the money he's inherited to purchase a 20% stake of what's called the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, mm-hmm. or BCCI. Um, you might be familiar, actually, Brian Cranston made a movie, The Infiltrator, where he uh, plays a businessman who goes undercover in a fictional version of this bank to bust the Medellin cartel. Right, right. Like, uh, BCCI was notorious in the late 80s, early 90s. It was nicknamed the Bank of Crooks and Criminals. Huh. It was... Uh, 
It was this institution that was founded in Pakistan and essentially had like no regulatory oversight whatsoever. You know, like all of the managing directors and everybody was engaged in outright fraud. But they were also just money laundering for every drug cartel, every terrorist organization. And uh, unsurprisingly, also being used by the CIA to hide whatever black operations they wanted to hide from Congress. Um, Say it, Yogi. Why does it got to be black? <laughs> Why can't they be white operations? Yes. But so, you know, like... CIA white ops. Right. <laughs> but so Khaled, like, again, between 86 and 1990, he buys 20% of this thing, like, right before it gets raided by the feds, essentially. But he also becomes the chief operating officer of it, the COO. Oh. So not only does he, like, lose his ass on this huge investment, but he gets indicted criminally in New York court. Like, um, well, there's a convenient way to maybe um, get rid of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> he he does manage to just pay a fine and get rid of it. Uh, just uh, like just a basic Wikipedia quote. I mean, that's a first step. Yes. So, what's the last step, Andy? <laughs> and how many steps are there? Um, I, I mean, I, I I think we're gonna get to that. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so just a basic like, and so with BCCI, like this could be an entire future episode, and it might be. But just like a basic Wikipedia quote to give you an idea here, uh, BCCI has been accused was accused of opening accounts or laundering money for figures such as Saddam Hussein, Manuel Noriega, uh, Samuel Doe, and for criminal organizations such as the Medellin Cartel and uh, Abu Nidal is uh, the precursor to uh, Fatah. Saddam Hussein's the guy who did 9/11, right? Yes. Um, and so, uh, John Kerry actually, um, did, a, an investigation when he was in the Senate, um, in 1999, uh, a guy named William Van Rab, R-A-A-B, mm-hmm. told the Kerry committee in 1991 that the Central Intelligence Agency held, quote, several accounts at BCCI, uh, and which were used for a variety of covert operations, including transfer of money and weapons during the Iran-Contra affair. Hmm. So, you know, this is kind of like an unregulated money laundering bank that's also just like straight up stealing from depositors is like the ideal place for the CIA to hide its black operations from Congress. So between BCCI, the Vatican Bank we talked about on our Patreon episode coming out this Thursday, and um, what was the other bank we talked about recently that uh, hid uh, money from Nazis and shit? Swiss? Yes, the Swiss banks. Was BCCI uh, as big as Swiss or the Vatican one? Uh, BCCI opened in 1972. About a decade later, they had uh, excess of 20 billion U.S. dollars in Mm assets, making them at the time the seventh largest private bank in the world. Wow. So they collapsed around 1991. But at their prime, (laughs) they were like uh, part and parcel of the global financial system. Oh, nice. All right, but so what happens with Khalid Ben Mahfouz is that in 1991, he's indicted by a New York State grand jury. Mm-hmm. Uh, the charges include bank fraud, bribery, uh, <laughs> illegal shipping of arms and other offenses. We the worst! <laughs> uh, he pays a fine, uh, no admitting of wrongdoing, $225 million. Hmm. Um, but the interesting thing here is just like, and again, we could do an entire episode on BCCI. We might in the future. Sure. I don't want to get too bogged down. We have a lot of stuff to cover here. But um, uh, so... The uh, BCCI is, uh, he makes this 20% investment after inheriting the Saudi National Commercial Bank. According to the Irish Times, National Commercial Bank had an intimate relationship with BCCI, where BCCI, quote, parked hundreds of millions of dollars of loans with the Saudi bank. 
the Guardian alleged that BCCI was using cash from deposits to fund operating expenses rather than make investments, which is extremely illegal for a bank to do. Right. Um, and then uh, something I found interesting was that uh, the jur- an investigative journalist named Joseph Trento argued that the bank, BCCI's, transformation from like a somewhat legitimate bank into a giant fraud and money laundering operation mm-hmm. uh, was guided by the head of Saudi intelligence with a view to enabling it, enabling it to finance covert American intelligence operations at the time in the aftermath of Watergate. Oh. Again, we talked about this a little bit on the premium episode, but uh, after Watergate, there were congressional investigations into the CIA. Uh, but something I found very interesting was uh, uh, a journalist... An investigative journalist named Joseph Trento argued that BCCI's transformation from like a somewhat legitimate bank into a giant like money laundering and uh, deposit theft scheme right, right. was uh, guided by the head of Saudi intelligence at the time uh, in order to enable it to finance covert American intelligence operations in the aftermath of Watergate. Something we talked about a little bit on the premium episode about Rihanna's boyfriend is that uh, after Watergate, there were congressional investigations into just what the CIA was doing, so they needed a place to store their money off books. So it makes sense that it's like the head of this giant Saudi bank maybe was asked by the government to buy 20% of this kind of unregulated Pakistani bank right. and then like turn it into uh, a front for money laundering yeah. for the Central Intelligence Agency, among others. And this is like maybe a collaborative project between Saudi intelligence and uh, U.S. intelligence. So, you know, uh, and we'll uh, we'll probably never know the extent of the relationship there, but I do uh, recommend taking a look at the uh, the bank of... Um, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, because it's a fascinating story, and uh, we'll probably do a follow-up episode in the future. So, like, let us know uh, other interesting little tidbits about it that you you happen to know. If you got dirt on it, send it to us. Yes. Oh, I do love. Uh, you might be familiar with U.S. Senator, former Senator Orrin Hatch, was the senator mm-hmm. for Utah. So, BCCI in the late '80s starts like being very credibly accused of money laundering for terrorist cartels, all right. this stuff. Uh, so he makes. U.S. Uh, Orrin Hatch, then a U.S. senator, in 1990 makes an impassioned defense of uh, of the bank on the floor of the Senate, uh, and it just so happens that Hatch had previously successfully solicited the bank to approve a $10 million loan to his close friend. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which I just love, you know, just the kind of like garden variety corruption that's always brushed under the rug when it comes to these, you know, respectable senators and of other, course, of course. other such, you know, dignified people who are so much better than the Trump Republicans. But yes, yeah, so the uh, BCCI was 100% like balls deep in the Iran-Contra affair. Um, and so just a couple other things about Khaled Maf- uh, bin Mahfouz. Uh, in uh, 1990, he buys an Irish passport. According to the Irish Times, he meets uh, with the Minister of Justice, Minister for Justice of Ireland at the mm-hmm. time in 1990, and uh, promise him, him to uh, he'll invest 20 million pounds if he can get passports. And so he manages to, over lunch, get passports for him and, like, 10 members of his entourage. What? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the Irish Times, uh, uh, the passports were handed over before the necessary naturalization procedures were completed, and the requirement that the applicant square, swear an oath of fidelity to the state was waived, which is in violation of the procedures. And it just so happens, like, his his descendants own a piece of Kerry Airport in Ireland to mm-hmm. this day, <laughs> and they have, like, a board seat on the airport in Ireland. Um, nice. Yeah. So it's just, like, one of those, like, nice little schemes 
uh, of selling passports is uh, something that the mix were getting up to. Maybe yeah. they're just into Jameson. They wanted to do yearly trips, and they're like, let's just get passports. <laughs> that way we don't have to deal with the visa situation every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Caleb uh, Ben Mafuz, he's uh, he loses his shirt in um, in National Commercial Bank in Saudi when you know he invests all of this into this commercial this. Well, that's Ma- rough because that's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this massive fraud that's shut down, or that's the BCCI is shut down. He loses his whole investment there. Uh, there's lots of people suing him, trying to get their money back, who lost their money in this bank. Right. So, uh, uh, National Commercial Bank in Saudi, even though he inherited, it kicks him out of the CEO role, and it brings in some Citibank guy to to restructure it and all sure. that. Back cleanup. Yes. But so what happens is then he returns and he gets to run it again in 1996, mm-hmm. and then he runs it into the ground again. <laughs> <laughs> so just like according to Forbes, he yeah, returns. You know, play the hits. <laughs> he returns in 1996. Uh, and then uh, by 1999, quoting from Forbes, things got so nasty in 1999, the Saudi government stepped in buying a controlling 50% stake in National Commercial Bank from Khalid for at least $1 billion, partly used to wipe Khalid's debt from the books. <laughs> Khalid and his family retained 34% ownership, but he again surrendered management positions. So, so they bought him out. They nationalized it, yes. The mm-hmm. Saudi government nationalized it in about 1999. Now, do you think, how much was he worth pre this billion dollar um, buyout? So, I believe at the time of his death, which was 2009, he was mm-hmm. worth about $3.4 billion U.S. dollars, $3.35 billion right. estimate net, net worth at time of death. So, this could have been maybe f- uh, between 30 to 70% of the money he made from this deal? Yeah, I mean, like, he really just kind of inherited his dad's money, right. and then uh, it seems like he loses money in points, but mostly <laughs> at points, but mostly he just manages to kind of, like, stay flat. Sure, sure. Which is, like, very impressive when you consider that capital, like, if you do absolutely nothing with it, is supposed to return 8% a year. <laughs> so if you manage to knock that down to zero, you're really just hitting it out of the park. Right. Um, but it is interesting where, you know, the Saudi state comes in and bails him out, uh, and, you know, to this day, uh, National Commercial Bank is nationalized, though they've recently IPO'd like a 25% stake. Hmm. Um, and so according to Forbes, like, we don't know the extent of his mismanagement at National Commercial Bank uh, because it has not issued audited numbers. I believe this Forbes article is 2002, but from 98 to 2002, it did not issue audited numbers. Uh, but it did acknowledge last year, I think 2001, that... Bad loans in 1999 and 2000 reached $934 million, covering 86% of its doubtful debt. So he comes in 1996, runs up like more than a billion in just unrepayable loans, and then has to be (laughs) nationalized and bailed out by the Saudi state. But, you know. Respect. Yeah. You can only fail upwards if you just are born into uh, government connections. Um, and then the Saudi audit did find substantial discrepancies in the books of National Commercial Bank. Um, but so, you know, the Saudis, they nationalized National Commercial Bank. Uh, apparently, Mafu's family members were able to maintain 10% stakes, mm-hmm. like each. He has like three kids. Um, and they have seats on the boards. Um, but, you know, it's nationalized. And uh, there are suspicions, which I'll get to right here, that uh, the bank had funneled, quote, millions to charities that were serving as bin Laden fronts. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah. So, like, 
The other thing is, you know, in addition to the intelligence operations, uh, when BCCI was, you know, of course, funding terrorism, right. but also Khalid Ben Mahfouz sets up some uh, charities that are very much suspected of um, being fronts for Al-Qaeda. Hmm. Uh, in particular, there's one, um, this is a Forbes article. Um, uh, there's a What, Al-Qaeda is not a charity? <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a, a charity called uh, Mufak. Uh, M-U-W-A-F-F-A-Q. And before you make fun of me, you don't know how to pronounce it, too. Okay? Mufak seems close enough. Uh, I'm not going to fault you on it, but I'm pretty sure you're wrong. A charity that was murdered by Scar in front of Simba. It's better than the word that we like thought we knew how to pronounce, but we actually didn't slightly in, the, in a, a past episode. Sure, sure. Uh, but so, you know, this is like a charity, um, and interestingly enough that I found amusing, um, so it's very credibly alleged that this is a front to fund money to funnel money to Al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. and would you like to guess who was auditing this charity's books? Who? It was the accounting firm Arthur Anderson, which you might know was shut down because of the Enron scandal. Oh, they, yeah. They were the people who were auditing Enron's books and being like, yeah, everything's fine here. And this is how we connect this to Elizabeth Holmes. This is where the nanotainers come into 9-11. <laughs> Arthur Anderson was like, so this $100,000 invoice for box cutters, if, <laughs> if we could just change that to management expenses... <laughs> What do you think was a harder cover-up for them, Enron or f- funding Al Qaeda? So I think Enron. Yeah, probably. So, so this nine million dollar line that says safe houses throughout the United States. <laughs> if we could just change that to janitorial services. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Arthur Anderson was auditing the books of um, this uh, this charity. And um, the U.S. Treasury uh, described it in October 2002, uh, the charity, as, quote, an al-Qaeda front that receives funding from wealthy Saudi businessmen. Um, and then uh, Khalid Ben Mahfouz would notoriously start suing a bunch of people after the September 11th attacks because people pointed out that he funneled a bunch of money to al-Qaeda. Um, like, in, uh, in 1995, a uh, Africa Confidential is a British newsletter. Again, this is from Forbes. It accused the charity of having connections with terrorists. I will say, after the last few months, hearing that something was funded by, quote, wealthy businessmen and isn't a international pedophile ring. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, it's kind of far-fetched. like, oh, oh, it's just terrorism? <laughs> okay, then, whatever. There was, um, again, from the same Forbes article, there's a... Uh, a former U.S. ambassador gives the quote that he said that uh, Mufak was part of a push after the Gulf War by Saudi rulers to shore up their long political relationship with puritanical Wahhabi religious leaders by financing the building of mosques and schools outside the kingdom. Hmm. He believes that the royal family often got Saudi tycoons to foot the bill for such efforts, which Osama bin Laden was able to hijack and use as cover for 9-11, or for Al-Qaeda, I should say. Um, and so, you know, like the amount... That Caleb Ben Mafuz funneled to Al Qaeda is in dispute. I've heard figures of like one hundred million dollars, but it should just be noted it, he, this guy has sued so many fucking people over these allegations. He's dead now in two thousand nine, but I wanted to just kind of quickly go through. Uh, he's. Uh, I just want to say though, Mufak, but do Mu love. <laughs> 
Uh, I wanted to quickly go through in uh, June 2006. So uh, we've talked about libel tourism. He'd sue these things in London court because it's much easier to win a judgment there. Mm -hmm. In June 2006, he sues a book called The Forbidden Truth. In April 2006, he sues a book called Funding Evil, How Terrorism is Financed. In July 2004, he sues a book called Terrorism Financing, Roots and Trends of Saudi Terrorism Financing. Uh, in uh, 2004, he sues the book House of Bush, House of Saud and prevents it from being published in the United Kingdom. Like, it was published in the United States before the Bush-Kerry election, but he sues it in the United Kingdom to keep it out of there. He also sues the book Alms for Jihad in 2006 and gets the publisher to pulp it. And, uh, what does so, that mean? Like, destroy all copies of the book. Oh. So if you actually want to get a copy of the book, it's like $70 used on Amazon, or you can just go to WikiLeaks and they have a copy up there. <laughs> I think the lesson here is don't publish your book in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, you know, he... Uh, and I guess just like two other things on Mafuz, and then we'll go to the 9-11 thing. But we should mention here the Golden Chain. According to Alms for Jihad, the Golden Chain is uh, discover... It's a list of mostly Saudi wealthy... Uh, Rappers that yes. are about to be signed by Rockefeller <laughs> Nation. And when they get that gold chain, that's when they know their life's changed. So... The Golden Chain is a, a list discovered in uh, 2002 by Bosnian police in a charity that's actually a front for Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. And it is a list of like the names of 20 or so uh, wealthy Saudi businessmen. Um, according to Alms for Jihad, six of them were bankers, 12 of them were businessmen, two of them were unknown of these Saudis. And they say, Alms for Jihad says, the net worth of the 18 identified Saudis as of 2002, was 85 billion U.S. dollars. What? So this is basically every billionaire in Saudi Arabia is on this list. Yeah. Uh, he said, uh, the Alms for Jihad quotes that as 42% of Saudi Arabia's GDP for that year, 2002, wow. is represented in this list of 18 names. Um, and interestingly enough, of the six bankers, all of them were principals in the three largest banks in Saudi Arabia. Oh, just a note to our uh, U.K. listeners, please do not tell any Saudi billionaires about our podcast. <laughs> Think about how many Toyotas you could buy with that amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> the grub stickers are, are so excited when they get their free trips to the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of white Toyota trucks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Reinforced armor. Uh-huh. Hole. Uh-huh. Yeah. But so, of course, the principals of the three largest banks in Saudi Arabia are on this list. And that, of course, uh, includes Khalid Ben Mahfouz uh, of the National Commercial Bank. In his defense is that this list is written either 1988 or 89 mm-hmm. when, you know, U.S. policy was still funding essentially al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, right, right. the precursor to it. Um, and so he says he do- I think his excuse is he donated something like two hundred and seventy thousand dollars to bin Laden. But back when the U.S. government liked him, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but it's like it's not very conceivable that you would do that and then just stop before nine sure, eleven. Sure. Right. Right. It's a little little odd to stop before a national international tragedy that occurs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, National Commercial Bank, again, you know, one of the three largest banks in Saudi Arabia, that's the where the Mafuz family gets their fortune. Um, they're being sued by the 9-11 families, as well as insurers, like uh, the insurers who had to do the insurance policy on 9-11 have sued them <laughs> and other people in Saudi Arabia for something like $4.3 billion. Damn. Um, 
and I just wanted to quote a uh, uh, 2008 Philadelphia Inquiry Inqu- Inquirer article on uh, this lawsuit against uh, National Commercial Bank. Uh, the primary vehicle for the mon- money laundering scheme, the plaintiffs allege, was a now defunct charity called the Mufak Foundation, mm-hmm. which was established by two former senior officials of the bank. Um, they charged that uh, uh, Mufuz and his partner founded Mufak. Uh, while they were affiliated with National Commercial Bank in the early 90s, used it to funnel money to Al-Qaeda. And they also funneled uh, uh, the plaintiffs, filed reports by a German intelligence service asserting that the National Commercial Bank was used to launder money into Al-Qaeda. And uh, they filed the, what the plaintiffs said was a cable from the former French ambassador from Saudi Arabia to 98, from 1998 to 2004. Uh, in the cable, uh, the French ambassador says Saudi authorities had unearthed information that Ben Mafouz had been involved in fund transfers, fund transfers from national commercial banks, from national commercial bank to an Islamic charity that in turn directed the money to Bin Laden. Um, and then there was testimony from the House Committee on International Relations in October 2001, uh, where a former chief of counterterrorism at the CIA said, "Quote: There is little doubt that a financial conduit to Bin Laden was handled through the National Commercial Bank." Unquote. So I hope we've been able to establish here that. At least up until September 11th, 2001, he was funneling money to Al-Qaeda. Right. And then, you know, he... Is every terrorist plot riddled with people that are funneling money around the world? Like, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be so shocked that groups that are militias or guerrillas or terrorists have a backing of finance that's corrupt. But it seems to me that that's always the case. Is that true? Well, the Boston bombers were pretty DIY. They just had the FBI funding them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like to carry out like an operation like nine eleven, the cost estimates I've heard is between like three hundred and fifty thousand to five hundred thousand. It's pretty and cheap. Yeah, so it's not that expensive. Um, I guess the you could take out a mortgage to buy a nine eleven. Yeah, you really could. I was gonna say flip uh, that house. And- we know Mossad didn't do nine eleven because they would have haggled about the price. <laughs> Send your complaints to. <laughs> um, but so I wanted Virtual Texas. <laughs> I wanted to mention uh, two last things about Ben, ben Mafuz, and then we'll talk a bit about the September 11th attacks. Uh, in the book House of Bush, House of Saud, again written in 2004, they do actually establish a bit of a connection between George W. Bush and uh, Caleb Ben Mafuz, because in the uh, mid 80s, he was living in Houston, Texas. And he had kind of a tertiary link with George W. Bush, uh, just quoting from a Guardian write-up of the book. Um, oh, they paint together? Yeah. In 1987, a Saudi associate of uh, Khalid bin Mahfouz helped a young George Bush and his struggling oil firm, Harkin Energy, by buying 17% of its stock. Uh, then in 1990, the prime minister of Bahrain, uh, who just so ha- Bahrain? Bahrain? Bahrain. Bahrain. Not Bahrain. Iran, Iran, but by yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and Iran, Iran that swings both ways. <laughs> it's like the so they enforce by. <laughs> there's like a there's a social social police, <laughs> just like uh, hanging heteronormative people from cranes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, Bahrain, 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 Bahrain. In 1990, the Prime Minister of Bahrain. Uh, awarded offshore drilling rights to Bush's company, Harkan. 
but it just so happens that he was a huge shareholder in previously mentioned BCCI. Mm-hmm. So this is like another connection where uh, um, the prime minister of uh, Bahrain was like really heavily involved in this very shady bank who just so happened to give uh, be like 20% owned by Khalid bin Mahfouz and who also um, gave, you know, lucrative oil rights to George W. Bush. And then in 1995, the book asserts that uh, Khalid bin Mahfouz, his two sons, invested 30 million U.S. dollars in 1995 in the Carlyle Group, which you might know from our previous episode on them, was paying George H.W. Bush like a million or a hundred thousand a speech to go around and solicit uh, foreign market opportunities for them. Man, I'm so excited when we're like five, six hundred episodes deep, and we're just like, okay, so we m- mentioned three of these things. Yeah. On the you, might re- uh, you might remember this from Star- <laughs> Star- Starbucks episode 18. <laughs> okay, we talked right. about this They're on episode two. They're actually involved in this child sex cult. <laughs> yeah. um, this is the Northwest one. There's actually Saudi money behind it. If you remember episode uh, 135, uh, 278, and uh, 432, they were actually raping children on the planes as they went into the buildings. The episodes will still be like 60 minutes long, but like 30 minutes of that will be like, so you might remember on episode 23, we <laughs> talked about this, and but also on episode 45, we set up this. Uh, so if you refer back to that. So episode uh, uh, 237 uh, is uh, odd to Kubrick, and uh, what we've made sure to do is in- include Epstein's manifesto that links him to the Kubrick murders, which also links the, to the Tom Cruise-Nicole Kidman divorce, which was led, in fact, because they had a island near uh, the Epstein Island. And, and of course, as uh, was established in episode 138, this is all being orchestrated by the British royal family. <laughs> Uh, but so Caleb Ben Mahfouz dies of a heart attack, 60 years old, in 2009. He's worth about 3.35 billion dollars. Can his we just death. plan tentatively, by the way, to make episode 138 about the British royal family? Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome. right. I'll lock that away. We committed here. Uh, he has two sons and a daughter. Uh, Abdul Raham is his son, as well as uh, his brother Sultan, and um, I believe the daughter is called Iman. Uh, but so there's a 2002 U- United Nations report uh, that alleges Kalen uh, Ben Mufuz had funneled about 100 million U.S. dollars to Osama bin Laden. Hmm. Uh, he also sued the authors of that report. <laughs> wow. Uh, but so, you know, regardless, they inherit the money and they've kept a low profile since then, understandably. Um, the uh, Mufuz family members, uh, three. Uh, According to a Al Jazeera in 2018... It would be pretty baller, though, if they got into New York high-end nightlife. <laughs> just, like, at every red carpet event. Like, yeah, we paid for 9-11. <laughs> Stop us. You can't. We own your government. Petrodollars. I hope y'all stocked up on petrodollars because, man, that attack has sent Brent crude through the roof. <laughs> 20%... Higher than it was uh, two days ago. Mm -hmm. Highest percentage increase since the invasion of Kuwait. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Much love to the the Yemenis for pulling that off. So um, I hope you held on to those petrodollars. And then also sold your anime and manga dollars. Because Japan is so fucked in terms of oil, oil hegemony. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we have to go to war with Iran to fuck up because they fucked up my commodities puts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so in 2018, Al Jazeera reports that three billionaire members of the Mahfouz family were detained in the quote-unquote corruption crackdown that was carried out by Khalid, uh, uh, that was carried out by uh, MBS, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. And uh, what we've kind of talked about, again, on the premium episode, is that this corruption crackdown was really just a way of the, the royal family to bring all the billionaires into heel. They detained a lot of billionaire businessmen and said, hey, uh, you know, pay us a bribe or invest here right. or make your company into an arm of the Saudi government or there will be trouble. Like you will be uh, either murdered or just have your af- assets confiscated. Right here in River City. With a capital uh, T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, like. Me up on that? Okay. It seems like. What is that, Andy? It's the music man. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. Oh, well, it, it suffice to say that pool is uh, haram and banned in Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you can only play billiards. To finish out the Mafuz family, uh, the the kids. It seems like they're just kind of collecting their money. Like there's a there's two companies. There's the holding group Al Marjan Group is mm-hmm. the holding company, and there's also Sedco Capital S E D C O Capital. Uh, they recently bought some fucking FedEx facility in the middle of the United States. Uh, they've been investing in real estate, but apparently the way Sedco works is like the majority of board members are non-family. So it's like the kids inherited this uh, uh, oil bank wealth, and now they just kind of let other people run it, and they cash the checks, and they do whatever the fuck they do. They stay out of the press, except for apparently um, one of the sons was, you know, the uh, the Seashells meeting between Eric Prince and uh, uh, a Russian sovereign wealth fund guy. Was uh, that the one by the seashore? Yes. <laughs> right before Trump was inaugurated, you know, this was like an obsession of Rachel Maddow's for a little bit. And, you know, I'm sure they talked about diplomatic shit. But for whatever reason, um, uh, the son, um, Abdullah, was there. He was at this meeting. For so. Really? Yeah, so, you know, like, Eric Prince was another billionaire, apparently there as, like, an unofficial representative of uh, Abdul Raham, was the son, excuse me. Hmm. But he was there at this meeting between Eric Prince and uh, some guy who runs the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Russia, uh, a Sovereign Wealth Fund of Russia who's connected to Putin. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what they do in the future. But I guess, like, with the time we have left... Uh, I wanted to talk just a little bit about the September 11th attacks and why we know uh, what Saudi Arabia has done there. Sean, why are you hard? <laughs> so where were you guys on September 11th, 2002? Steve? Uh, in middle school. But you, Sean, where were you at? I like how Andy said 2002. <laughs> I was at, no, I'll tell you where I was. Uh, at September oh, 11th, okay. 2002. I was at a Sherry's. Uh, which, for those who don't know, it's uh, a high-end Denny's knockoff on the West Coast. And they had a little 9-11 memorial. And there was a, a family decked out in American flags that walked up to the Sherry's 9-11 memorial in the middle of a strip mall. Mm-hmm. And looked upon it and got really misty-eyed. Really? Yeah. I was also in middle school, but I thought Andy meant 2001. And I won my middle school election for president. And I didn't realize that when you win a uh, student body in middle school. <laughs> it's like, you, oh, man, now I got to deal with 9-11. <laughs> well, yeah. you had to give up your lunches. You had to do working meeting lunches. And I was like, I'm trying to eat. I'm trying to 
worked during a lunch meet and so but we had like a bus stop ad that we we could paint whatever we wanted to paint on it and so all of the other uh, student body kids were like let's do like pro america 911 and i was like why why would we do that why would we make people waiting for the bus think about 911 and i was shot down immediately and then i walked out of office some <laughs> call me the richard nixon of eaton eaton elementary school <laughs> Yogi was like, you kids, it might really endanger my re-election bid <laughs> if we make people start thinking about 9-11. Uh, but so I wanted to kind of quickly go through some of the uh, September 11th stuff because there's this great actually... Yeah, here, well, here's a, here's a fun fact about Yogi. You know when yes. he's about to um, travel internationally because he shaves his beard. <laughs> yeah, I have done that several times. Uh, so there's a BBC documentary. It's on Netflix. It's called uh, 9-11 Truth, Lies, and Conspiracies. And it goes through just a little bit of this stuff. And I find it all pretty interesting where the two hijackers we re- uh, referenced earlier that are sometimes called the San Diego cell, uh, their names are Nawaf El-Hazmi Kelly and Khalid El-Midrar. Uh, Midrar. Um, and so both of the- Klingon dog? What you reading, son? <laughs> Uh, I do have the Spock haircut, so the listeners can't see that. But uh, So what I wanted to say was, according to this documentary, both of them were on CIA watch lists. In 1999, uh, late 1999, they traveled to Malaysia for like a terrorist summit where uh, the people there are planning attacks on America, from what we know. Uh, you know what people don't know is uh, Malaysia is Spanish for bad Asia. Andy just threw me a book, <laughs> the Arabic alphabet: how to read and write it. <laughs> Did you learn Farsi, son? Um, it's an Arabic book. Yeah, but the script <laughs> it doesn't is say a, the Farsi. The alphabet. script is the same. Oh, Andy got this because this podcast has radicalized him. <laughs> He's gonna fucking go to a <laughs> Chechen camp. <laughs> you rolled into flight school. Yeah, we uh he is a he is a Saudi handler. You guys, it's it's hard for us to do the podcast without Andy, but we have to admit he really did better promotion than we'd ever been able to do before. <laughs> the hits are through the roof <laughs> ever since the incident. <laughs> um okay, so these two um uh future 9/11 hijackers. Uh in 1999 they're at this terror summit in Malaysia. The CIA has them on a watch list. The CIA is aware that their visas uh, are stamped to allow them I to enter. I just want to see like terrorists wearing lanyards. <laughs> <laughs> and like they're like, are you going to this panel? It's on this panel on C like C four, uh, like suicide detonation. It's gonna be fucking sick, dude. One of them has like a little text Al Nusra, and another one has a little text ISIS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another one in little text, the Montana Patriots front. There's <laughs> a TEDx. Yeah. <laughs> if you fuck up the name, they get all shitty. Like, it's it's pronounced New Waif. <laughs> <laughs> Idiot. Uh, but so, you know, the CIA has them on a watch list. They're in this terror summit in Malaysia in 99. They ha- the CIA knows that their visas are stamped to allow them to enter the United States, but they don't tell the FBI. And the speculation in this... Uh, Netflix doc, according to like a former FBI agent who was attached to the CIA, uh, 
the speculation is that the CIA was trying to flip these two Al Qaeda terrorists right. and turn them into, you know, assets. But what actually happens is they enter the United States and the CIA loses track of them and then has to tell the FBI three months before 9 11, uh, there were two terrorists on a watch list who entered the United States and we didn't tell you and then we lost track of them. <laughs> <laughs> because we want, like, I, they probably didn't say to the FBI because we wanted to flip them as spies and then right, we failed. Right. <laughs> But it's like, you know, so it's like, why does the CIA engage in the Bush cover-up? Well, they FBI and CIA obviously fucked up a huge amount letting this attack go off. So they have every incentive to go along with this Bush administration cover-up and protect their own asses. Because if it came out that the CIA was trying to flip 9-11 hijackers, and then, like, some guy went to, like, his Dunkin' Donuts break, and then they were like, where the fuck did they go? <laughs> If that came out about the CIA, that might be like very damaging and potentially even destroy the organization. Yeah, of course. You know, so I'm skeptical yes. that much of anything could destroy the CIA. All you, all you need is like a president kind of hinting at it, and then you know suddenly yeah. the social security's planning an open topped uh, <laughs> parade. <laughs> I do think we might see in our lifetime, we might see that theory tested because it might come out all in the same month that really? the CIA was running Epstein and that the CIA tried to flip the 9-11 hijackers <laughs> and that the CIA knew 9-11 was going to happen. What a time to yeah. be alive. So that would be funny just to see if the CIA could survive. They were running Epstein and they were running the hijackers both coming out the same month. And if they can survive that, they can survive anything. Yeah, yeah. practically. Yeah. Uh, what would have to come out that would be crazier than all of that? Like they, like pre Epstein, they were like, "You guys know aliens are real, and we're confirming it." And everyone's like, "Who gives a fuck?" <laughs> and then, like a month later, they're like, "Oh, Epstein was real," and we're like, "What?" And they're like, uh, "Popeye's got new chicken sandwiches." <laughs> like literally, the hysteria of news has gone so quickly that I don't know what the CIA could do to make us be like, "Man, fuck that organization." Look, Epstein was really just a front. To run children, to fuck the aliens, to keep them happy. <laughs> we were preventing an Independence Day style invasion. Right. This is why the private planes flew into the Bermuda Triangle and they would land on the island, but secretly they would be beamed up from the triangle. The target was that weird sundial with the. <laughs> yeah, now we're like. Now we're trying to like legit sort of like uh, almost justify the Epstein mania in our minds by saying, well, actually, it was part of some alien conspiracy <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah. When really it was all for mundane freaking capital accumulation. A bunch of like CIA uh, agents run for Congress on the Democratic ticket being like, Donald Trump has disrespected our alien agents <laughs> <laughs> who laid down their lives for this dimension in its war <laughs> against the five dimensional pedophiles. You see, if Independence Day were real, it, instead of the president like flying a jet plane to shoot at aliens, you're right, like, Mr. Right. President, aliens are about to destroy the world. You can stop it if you fuck this child. <laughs> That's what's that's the, what's the end of it is like we do the podcast and then we get taken behind the curtain and they're like you wouldn't understand we need the three dimensional pedophiles to fight the seven dimensional pedophiles <laughs> the only thing that can stop a good a bad pedophile is a good pedophile <laughs> we're like uncovering all of this Those but in white, the mean white hat pedophiles <laughs> But in the meantime, we've all been offered jobs by SNL, so they're just combing through all the episodes. <laughs> oh, those, those guys fucking suck. 
fire them. Yeah. We're literally being like, okay, apparently there's multiple dimensions of pedophiles and they all are working together and against one another somehow. And they're like, oh, did you hear Yogi said Elon Musk eats butt in episode three? I'll fucking lynch him. Here's the thing, though. We're not video recording this and no one's just going to sit around and just listen to us <laughs> saying... <laughs> I have thought about this, this stuff. and we, when we do put the episodes on YouTube, and one of the reasons it's been stalled is because the auto text on YouTube is pretty good with audio that's pretty decent, which by the way, listeners, our audio is fucking decent, but uh, so our script does go into the YouTube algorithm when we upload the episodes up there. So they do have, there will eventually be a script version of our show, which I think would be nice for the deaf community. I think that uh, yeah. the uh, deaf community would love to hear the billionaire dirt. Read. You, you know, you're right, though. Like, it is a good thing because putting video on a podcast actually makes it more compelling and engaging. That's right. So if we want to talk about, you know, the interdimensional pedophiles, <laughs> it actually makes sense that we're too lazy to put this shit on video yeah. on YouTube exactly. because we're trying to protect our future job opportunities. He, you know, one guy on Reddit did figure it out. He said... Uh, Grubstakers uses drops to make their show seem si shitty so that they'd never be popular so they can continue to do it. And I was like, he's not wrong. That has been the entire goal. If we put enough socket to me's in an episode, a lawyer and or the government agencies above us will be like, I mean, you know, come on. What are we going to stop a show that talks about eating butt? All right, there's only We're one Americans. way. To, there's one way to test it. Andy, say an old-timey slur about Chinese people. <laughs> Let's see. We're not on video right now. So as long as we're not on video, it cannot hurt our career opportunities. Why don't we, why don't we all say one on three? Okay, everybody. And that way no one will know who said what. It's like a firing squad. One of us doesn't have to say the slur, but three of us will say the slur. So it'll be done. Okay, here we go. One, one two, two, three. three. Celestials. <laughs> nice. I'm going to bleep that part. So I didn't say anything, actually. <laughs> uh, sure you didn't, Steven. I said Celestials. I didn't say anything either. Because I'm still not sure how that's a... I mean, I guess it's a slur, but it's also kind of like, I'd like to be a Celestial. What the fuck's a Celestial? Look, on... It's an old-timey... It's an old-timey slur for... Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I, know I said Neanderthal. People. Oh. The original N-word. <laughs> Look, as we're remembering 9-11, I think we can all commemorate the real tragedy. Shane Gillis getting fired from <laughs> SNL. <laughs> <laughs> which was the subject of much more furious debate than the September 11th attacks. If you look closely, you can see Shane's career fall at near freeze fall speed. <laughs> no career could fall that fast, man. There's got to be some jet fuel that's hurting his career. There's no way just one podcast video stunts a career like that, man. Then all of them would be locked up. He was calling into Legion of Skanks, and then you hear the sound of one of the towers collapsing, and the phone line disconnects. Uh, all right. Well, so look, I want to get through just a little. I know we're Jet going a little. Jet fuel long. riffing doesn't melt mainstream media. <laughs> but look, look, the theme of this episode, in addition to the fact that all Saudi billionaires funded 9/11, right? Like that's how they made their for that was their charitable works was funding 9/11. <laughs> See, we're not just anti-Semitic. Yes. yes. Uh, the theme of this episode is like the stuff about jet fuel melt steel beams right. is 
like, you know, uh, people were speculating on Twitter, and even this is like, I don't know if I actually believe it, but it's not implausible that, you know, the U.S. government would stoke <gasps> these kinds of conspiracies. Sure. They would say, like, why not promote, you know, uh, a 9-11 truther because it prevents people from looking at the Saudi connection. Right. And it also makes people think if you say the official story is wrong, that you're a nutcase. You've got tinfoil on your head. And um, just like the quick uh, and dirty story is that, again, the 9-11 families have identified the lawyers claim 11 agents of the Saudi government, particularly the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, but also the Saudi ambassador in Washington, Prince Bandar. They called him Bandar Bush back during the Bush administration. He gave $130,000 from his personal account to a handler of two of the hijackers. Hmm. That money ended up with the hijackers. So the Saudi ambassador to the United States from the 80s up until 2005 uh, gave $130,000 to two of the hijackers. These guys are all way overpaying for 9-11 if it only costs $350,000. Right. Like, that's that's the real controversy is, like, all, all, all the money that's getting defrauded out of legitimate 9-11... I do like how the Saudi Funding. hijackers were like anybody like getting lunch on the company credit card. <laughs> we're like, yeah, nine eleven. That'll cost like two, three million dollars. <laughs> yeah, just uh, just put that on my company Al Qaeda card. <laughs> I've got the BCCI card. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so how the, did Visa approve this? So the Saudi ambassador pays the hijackers one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Two days after 9-11, there's a photo of him smoking cigars on the balcony of the White House with George W. Bush. Real photo. Uh, as part of this, really? the Bush administration approves his request to allow a bunch of different Saudis, like two dozen, I believe, many of whom were uh, alleged to be connected to this attack or funders of terrorists. Two dozen Saudis are evacuated from the United States under FBI escort, many without being questioned, and this includes members of the bin Laden family. So it's like, why the fuck does the Bush administration approve this? And then, you know, there are a ton of former FBI agents who are working with the 9-11 families to say, you know, the Bush administration stamped out all our leads. There were a bunch of different investigations. And uh, as soon as they led back to the Saudi embassy in Washington, they were like, no go. You know, that's shut down. The FBI shut down all sorts of investigations. I'm telling you, bro, petrodollars. Mm -hmm. Um. And so, you know, like, uh, we'll see what the third name is, but... Uh, and, and he has tens of thousands of dollars dollars worth of petrodollars right now. <laughs> He's just freaking laughing all the way to the bank Oh yeah, with those attacks. It's actually how much I owe in student loans. I took out my student yeah. loans entirely in petrodollars. Andy, he took out his student loans in petrodollars, and then uh, he went on Twitter and made a burner account and tweeted things like, Yemenis are shit. <laughs> I'll bet you Yemenis could never damage the uh, oil infrastructure of glorious Saudi Arabia. Um, so this uh, we mentioned this third name that the Trump administration is supposedly going to give to the 9-11 families. Uh, there's speculation that it might be this guy identified in the Politico article. Mm -hmm. His name is Khalid uh, Suwalem. Suwalem. Uh, he was the head of Dawa, which was a department within the uh, ministry, the Saudi Ministry of Islamic Affairs, mm. uh, that according to Politico, that stated goal is spreading the religion. And, you know, they spread mosques and madrasas around the world. So, you know, what you see is the Saudi Ministry of Islamic Affairs is founded, I believe, 1993. And they're preaching kind of the Wahhabist, uh, radical, fundamentalist interpretation of Sunni Islam throughout the world. And a bunch of people on uh, the payroll 
of uh, the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, but also, of course, the uh, Saudi embassy in Washington, are like serving as handlers for the uh, the hijackers in various capacities. Right. And, um, you know, so... Uh, and the, there's this great political article from 2017 that goes through kind of like one uh, um, theory of how this all went out. But I do just want to like mention one other thing about these two handlers who were um, uh, handling the uh, San Diego terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, one's name is, uh, according to Politico, Omar al uh, Bayomi, uh, who um, many uh, in San Diego's Islamic community assumed he was a Saudi spy since he could often be found walking around with a video recorder, taping everyone he encountered. He was also paid by the Saudis, but had been employed in a series of ghost jobs since the 1970s, according to Politico. So he had, like, no work jobs with the Saudis. And then the other handler was an imam at the uh, mosque where the two hijackers in San Diego went to, who was also an employee of the Saudi Ministry of Islamic Affairs. And, you know, uh, Bayami actually answers questions uh, with, he tells the FBI he met the two hijackers after overhearing their conversation in a restaurant, after which point he helped them find apartments, co-signed their leases, gave them money for rent, cell phones, connected them with people who got them driver's license and brought them to flight schools. What? Uh, And this is, of course, a likely Saudi intelligence officer. And also, according to Politico, shortly after the meeting, his $3,000 a month Saudi salary was bumped to $7,000 a month. Uh, So, you know, the implication here is that this third person whose name will be unredacted at some point in the uh, future directed him to uh, help these two hijackers get apartments and driver's license and shit in San Diego and paid him well to do it. Um. And, you know, like, look, we there's so many different threads. I want to pull on one last one, and then we can kind of talk about, like, what, I guess, the takeaway is or why all this shit happens. But the, the last... Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, speaking of Florida, um, the, the BBC documentary I mentioned, it does kind of go through this, which is, you know, Mohammed Atta was in what was called the Hamburg cell. They came from Germany to the United States. They spent some time, at least six months, in Florida. And once you get to Florida, their movements are, like, very like the timeline in the official you know 9-11 commission report and shit it kind of disappears and so what they found the florida bulldog is an independent paper in florida in 2011 they found out that muhammad Atta had uh visited along with uh, other hijackers at least three times a um a gated community like a mansion in prestancia florida right. owned by uh abdul aziz al-hajiz uh or it wasn't owned by, it was lived in by this guy. And so Muhammad Atta uh, visits this guy at least three times, and this guy, two weeks before 9-11, suddenly dips uh, with his wife and two kids. Two weeks before 9-11, he leaves so fast that they, uh, according to the Florida Sun Sentinel, he departed so suddenly that they left behind cars, three cars, one of which was brand new, clothes, a full refrigerator, and an open safe. Hmm. Apparently, there was like fruit on the table when uh, the police walked in and checked it out. So it was like there was clothing. It's just like very clearly, if you're like leaving for any legitimate reason, you would take some of that shit with you. Right, right. Apparently, they took one computer, <laughs> huh. uh, which maybe had some evidence on it. Um, and this guy who evacuated. Uh, very suddenly, uh, two weeks before 9-11, mysteriously, who Muhammad Atta had visited at least three times, right. uh, he shows up uh, working for Saudi Aramco, the state-owned oil company, 
in I believe the Daily Telegraph finds him in 2012 in London mm-hmm. working for uh, the Saudi government there. What? Yeah. Um, but so the other thing I wanted to mention is, um, uh, according to the Florida Bulldog, uh, from this house where uh, Muhammad Atta in Florida visited at least three times, mm-hmm. record subpoenas from the phone company linked calls dating back for more than a year to and from the house to several of the 9-11 hijackers and other terrorist suspects, including senior Al-Qaeda member Adnan uh, Shikrajuma. Uh, that's according to the Florida Bulldog. So he dips two weeks before 9-11. He gets a job with the Saudi state oil company. For whatever reason, Mohammed Atta uh, was visiting there at least three times. But the weird thing is the FBI knew about this and didn't tell it to the 2002 Joint Congressional Investigation and didn't tell it to the 2004 9-11 Commission Report. Really? This was only discovered by the Florida Bulldog in 2011, broke this story, and then they, uh, uh, Freedom of Information Act, the FBI, and the FBI was like, yeah, there's nothing there. Uh, and then finally they were like, yeah, we have 80,000 pages, but uh, it's all classified, and you're getting wow. none of it. So they're still in court fighting the FBI to get these 80,000 pages. But it is just like bizarre that, I mean, it's not bizarre. We know why. Yeah, it's corruption. Yeah. The FBI was covering up this very clear Saudi link. And, uh, you know, so, but I, I thought, like, one other interesting thing here is the guy who actually owned the house um, was the father of um, the guy, Mr. Al Hajij, the guy who dipped and then went to a job in, right, in London. Right. Uh, he was the father of his wife. So hmm. he was his son in law. And the guy who actually owned the house was a guy named Issam. Uh, Gaz Gazawai Gazawai, and Assam Gazawai is um, according to the F- Florida Bulldog, he was a royal family consultant. He was the son of a for- former Saudi ambassador, and uh, he was also an interior designer. Hmm. And uh, it's interesting where he uh, <laughs> in 2017 he reemerges and he sets up uh, a website for his interior designs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he thinks is most pressing in 2017? Yes. So it's like the Florida Bulldog has apparently used the uh, contact information on that website to try and be like, hey, were you involved with 9-11? Right, right. And uh, he has not gotten back to them yet. Um, but, you know, like I do recommend you check out the website because, you know, he uh, makes some uh, bitchin' prefabs for uh, Saudi princes and shit. Do you know that Ben Rhodes, one of the crooked media guys, uh, was one is of the he? writers of the 9-11 Commission Report. Really? Yeah. Ben Rhodes' Crooked Media? I think so. He, he was w- like uh, Obama's foreign policy guy, right? Yeah, he's like a, he was like a contributor. Hmm. But he's one of the guys that wrote the 9-11 Report? Yeah, I remember here. I used to listen to David Axelrod's shitty podcast. And I remember he was on, they were talking about it. And Axelrod was like, and you know, the 28 pages. And then Rhodes just got really kind of quiet and <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Uh, sorry, let me see. Oh, Isam. So the website, if anybody is in, so the website, if anybody is interested, is, um. What I'm saying is that Pod Save America covered up the Saudi connection to 9-11. <laughs> so, uh, the website, if anybody's interested, is Isam, E-S-A-M, G, uh, G-H-A-Z-Z-A-W-I, and then designs.com. Hmm. So you can look at just some really, really bitching, uh, <laughs> prefabs and you know uh there's a press t- 
tab where it shows pictures of him with George H.W. Bush, among others. <laughs> well. So he owned a house that was being visited at least three times by Muhammad Atta and four or five of the other hijackers in Florida. Uh, just so happened very near the flight school that they went to. King. Yes. Um, and, uh, oh, I guess last thing, and uh, sorry, we got a little long here, but um, uh, Andy mentioned the guy who lost his eye. Uh, Abu Zubaydah. Abu Zubaydah. Yeah. Yeah. According to the FBI, so I don't know if this is credible, but the Florida Bulldog reported it. Uh, according to the FBI, an address book confiscated when Zubaydah was captured contained the unlisted phone number of the company that managed the affairs of Ambassador Bandar's, Prince Bandar, the Saudi ambassador, his home in Colorado. He also had the phone number of an individual who at the time worked as a bodyguard at the Saudi embassy in Washington. So... You know, it is just something where, like, there are so many different loose threads leading back to both the Saudi Ministry of Islamic Affairs and the Saudi um, uh, Embassy in Washington. And, um, you know, and then uh, Senator Bob Graham was a Florida senator who uh, wrote the, or was one of the co-chairs of the original 2002 congressional report. He's since become, like, a huge 9-11 official story uh, skeptic, hmm. you know, this former senator from Florida. And he says, like, for example, the FBI has now claimed that they, like, did pr pass this Florida information to Congress. And he's like, I was the senator for Florida. I would have noticed if they, like, <laughs> said that the Muhammad Atta was hanging out in Florida right, and going right. to this, this mansion. So, oh, you were out that day. Yes. Uh, we, we, we tried to, uh, to get contact with you. They said you were, you were out. So apparently, according to Senator Bob Graham, he says that when he was trying to investigate this as um, the uh, co-chair of this original Senate uh, Congress Congressional Committee looking into it, according to him, among other things, is from the New York Post, uh, head of the FBI Robert Mueller refused their demands to question a paid FBI informant who was roommates with the hijackers and even moved him to a safe house where they couldn't find him. So the FBI was moving fucking paid informants that knew the hijackers to safe houses to hide them from congressional investigators. Um, you know, so it's like, it, it is just one of those things where I really do encourage people to check out, uh, uh, what Senator Bob Graham has said about this, because he says, you know, he tried to interview the FBI, CIA, etc., and whenever they got to Saudi Arabia, the veil came up, and uh, they would just hide and obfuscate what was actually going on there. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, I guess what you know I... who I think was, was behind the cover-up? Yes. Country music. Because <laughs> they had a renaissance after <laughs> That's right, that's right. The Dixie Chicks were in on it, and that's why they were so mad. <laughs> But, you know, and um, I guess what I wanted to, like, kind of close out with here is um, one of our Patreons actually hit me up and he suggested, you know, listening to our Patreon episode, like, what the fuck, why would Saudi do this? Because Saudi Arabia, at least the government, has a pretty good deal going. You know, we buy their oil, we send them cash, and then the strongest military in the world protects them. You know, why would they um, carry out an attack on essentially their guardian. They thought yeah. country music was getting stale. <laughs> um, and look, I don't have a perfect answer, but as far as I can theorize as to what like actually happened, what's the real 9-11 truth conspiracy? What is the real truth of 9-11? My best theory, uh, having read the little bit that I have, is um, Al-Qaeda was a proxy arm of Saudi Arabia. Uh, just like, you know, um, say Hezbollah is considered a proxy arm of Iran. You know, certainly the U.S. has their proxy forces around the world. 
Um, and so it operates in a way that they can extend their global influence and, you know, commit acts of violence against uh, enemies with plausible deniability. You know, Al-Qaeda can carry out attacks against Shia. Al-Qaeda can be a, an armed wing of the Wahhabist gospel that they're trying to spread, essentially like a terror, uh, you know, a, a terrorist organization that functions as a non-state proxy actor. So I think there is something where you can lose control of those things. And certainly the same thing happens with the CIA in the United States, where the CIA will often do things that, you know, not even the president is aware of, right, right. that the president or whoever hears about after the fact. You know, these kinds of um, separate power structures within government manage to establish their own authority, and they can uh, uh, carry out attacks that maybe the central government's not aware of. And I think there were certainly, in the Ministry of Islamic Affairs and the Washington Embassy of Saudi Arabia, there were lots of people, including the fucking ambassador, who were 100% aware that this shit was going down. Um, I think, like, the actual, you know, king of Saudi Arabia probably didn't know, but there were definitely a lot of people within the government who were aware and who wanted this to happen. Uh, because, you know, uh, the United States are crusaders and they set foot in Mecca and, and these sorts of things. Yeah. Nah, man, the real conspiracy is the Jewish Hollywood elite wanted to keep you don't mess with the Zohan down <laughs> because of his high cast of Muslim Americans to prop up the Muslim American propaganda that they were safe to hang out with. And so that's why they did 9-11, to slow down Adam Sandler's career because he was getting too big. And they're like, Oh, the Harvey Weinstein stuff's about to get out. We got to distract them for another two decades. Yeah. What what happened with the Jewish Hollywood mafia is like Adam Sandler was like, no, thank you. I will not go in the Epstein room. <laughs> and they're like, well, we're going to change something about your career then, buddy. And so Adam Sandler had to become part of the Epstein conspiracy after 9-11. That's right. 9/11. That's right. So, otherwise, they wouldn't have released the movie. Mm -hmm. That's what the liner notes of Punch Drug Love are all about. Oh. Um. But but I guess, like, you know, it seems very clear to me that elements within the Saudi government were aware of this. And I don't think the Bush administration had advanced knowledge, but I think there's a big financial relationship between the Saudi and United States elites that the Bush administration wanted to protect. But also, by covering this up, they got their casus belli, uh, however you pronounce that, for going to war with Iraq. And... Uh, and in addition to that, what happens after the Bush administration leaves is the CIA and FBI are complicit in this cover-up. So, of course, you know, the Obama administration keeps the cover-up going. Now the Trump administration keeps the cover-up going because there is so much institutional failure and embarrassment uh, at all levels of this shit. Well, it also helped Obama when he killed bin Laden, which if you go down that rabbit hole uh, with Seymour Hersh... Mm -hmm where it's it's very likely that bin Laden was a political prisoner of Pakistan that they were holding in, in case they wanted a favor from the United States. And then right. as soon as the United States found out, because a guy who was passed up for a promotion walked into a, a CIA uh, outpost in Pakistan Classic. and was like, hey, bin Laden's like right over there. They set it up to basically kill him and then make it look like he was hiding instead of a prisoner of right. the state of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. That's what fucking happened with Deep Throat, too. Like, yeah. every scandal just gets revealed because somebody gets right. passed over for right. a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> middle, manage middle management, bro. Give everyone the promotion the that heroes. they deserve, <laughs> even if they don't deserve it. 
But it is just something where, again, you know, look, we, we've gone long. We're a comedy podcast. Uh, Are we? Yeah. <laughs> not this episode. But it bothers me. It bothers me because, you know, in addition to everything else they have done, the Bush administration, these people should be in jail. They shouldn't be getting fucking retweeted by Andy Richter. Uh, <laughs> these people covered up the September 11th attacks. I like to call him President Gasman. Oh, what do you mean by these people, Sean? Yes. I mean, David Frum in triple parentheses. <laughs> no, it, it is just something. It turns out he's like Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> Where, you know, the Saudi ambassador, Prince Bandar, was like such a good friend of President Bush and like probably did 9-11. And it is just something where uh, if they knew, th- they're, they're, they made a decision they didn't want to ask those questions. And any leads that the FBI tried to, or any investigative body tried to do into Saudi Arabia were stonewalled. Um, and the 9-11 families have even talked about how the U.S. government actively worked against them in their lawsuit against Saudi Arabia. Owned. So it's just like there's so much elite money at stake here that they don't want to uncover that rock. And we don't know how high up into the Saudi government this conspiracy goes, but I think it certainly goes, like we've said, the Washington Embassy, the Ministry of Islamic Affairs. And Jeffrey Epstein. P- probably some mid-level people, you know, or not maybe even upper level. We don't know how far it goes, but... I think significant elements of the Saudi government, and I think if it came out, you know, like if it came out after 9-11, there might have been public demands to invade Saudi Arabia. Sure. Which would be very upsetting to essentially the international order that the United States has set up post-1945. Right. Like we got to find- Petrodollars. We got to go get, we got to go make nice with Venezuela and get our oil from somewhere else. We need petrodollars to ensure that the United, that the dollar is the uh, international reserve currency. God damn it. No. (laughs) Um, And Saudi Arabia maintains that uh, with petrodollar recycling and by making the the, the oil denominated in dollars. Now, now here, we should let the people know two hosts of this podcast do not believe in petrodollars. (laughs) One does, and then Yogi is indifferent. You're on on the fence. Uh, I think the worst thing about 9-11 is that 18 years later and a few days, I have to edit something Uh. that's 10 (laughs) minutes shorter than fucking Citizen Kane Uh. because Sean can't be concise in his fucking research. I know. I'm just saying that the... uh, It's freaking Return of the King. (laughs) Um, But we will see what happens with the uh, uh, the lawsuit against Saudi Arabia, the families, we'll see what happens with the Trump administration supposedly releasing the name of this other Saudi official to the families and if it comes out. And we will see how high up this, uh, this conspiracy goes. But, uh, you know, I really do hope that we will be able to do a little bit of work undoing the stigma of questioning the official story of 9-11 because the official story is absolutely a cover-up. It just happens to lead back to Saudi Arabia and not thermite or, um, you know, uh, a fucking cruise missile into the Pentagon. Allegedly. Yes. Because America needs oil to be denominated in dollars in order to maintain its global hegemony. All right. And with that, this has been Grudge Stakers. I'm Yogi Polywall. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Sean McCarthy. I'm Steve Jeffries. All right, bye. Thank you. Oh, hey, lastly, you know what though? Uh, we just uh, we, this is technically episode 98, but we're this is episode 99 for us. We're one away from 100, but we also just recently crossed 500,000 hits on our SoundCloud. So thank you very much to all our listeners. Uh, we do this for you. We are stuck in this. Uh, I'm going to call it purgatory for now <laughs> for you, but uh, yeah, yeah, keep on rocking in the free world. Love do, you. Do do do. All right. Good night. Bye. Bum. Ba-da-da-dum. <laughs>